for our second message today. We have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, The Hope That Is In You. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is on a surprisingly chilly day compared to what we've had the last few weeks uh, here on May 21st and was mentioned today. Today's day, anybody know? 35, that's right. So we're just almost two weeks away from Pentecost. And so as Reggie mentioned, my message today is called The Hope That Is In You. And you know how God works. Uh, he works through us. And as Mark was given the first message, I think it's very complimentary uh, to my message. Because that's what we're going to talk about. The hope that's in us. So in the beginning days of the Christian movement, we know that the early Christians faced criticism and questioning and persecution from both the Gentile world as well as the Jewish world. We see this all through the scriptures. We see this in the book of Acts. We see multiple times where the apostles are you know, persecuted for their beliefs as well as Jesus' life and ministry. We had to contend with the Jewish leaders of his day as well as the governmental authorities, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high council. But there's an interesting note that a few years ago, and I don't know exactly how many years, but I was listening or I was reading something to do with the rise of Christianity. And it talked about how even secular historians, when they look back at you know, the rise of Christianity, they're kind of puzzled by the nature of Christianity's growth. Here you have this small little movement, right? This little sect within Judaism. That's what people considered it. This, this, you know, this, these Jews that you know, maybe have a different belief. But in the midst of all that persecution, all that hostility, it grew into one of the largest religions in the entire world. And it kind of reminds me of Acts 17, chapter verse 6. And we've read this before, where Paul and them, they're in Thessalonica, which I'm doing a series on Thessalonica that I plan on picking back up after we get done with Pentecost. But there's a passage in there, chapter 17, verse 6, when they are there in Thessalonica, where they say, talking about these individuals, these Christians, referring to Paul and those who he's trying to evangelize, says these are the men who turn the world upside down. That's a movement that no doubt is distinct from other movements in all of history. Because against all odds, it grew into what it became. And that is one of the largest religions in the world. Now that doesn't mean that every person who adheres to or claims Christianity is a true follower and true genuine believer. But we know that this is just another evidence of God's spirit, that this was God-ordained. So in today's world, when we read these passages about the persecution, the trials that these early Christians faced, sometimes it might be a little bit hard to relate to. We live in the United States of America. We have freedom of religion, freedom of expression. And we don't face the same dynamics that they did back then. Although, to some degree, unfortunately, I think we would all agree that this is kind of changing. This happened last time. I'm going to put this right here. And hopefully, 
Can you still hear me all right? Hopefully that will reduce the, the interference. So we know that there's secularism that's on the rise in our culture, postmodernism, things like that. And in the last 20 or so years, there has been a resurgence of criticism among secular humanists, among scientists, philosophers, and may I add, in more recent times, social and political groups that try to fight against, argue against, and contend and attack the veracity and legitimacy of Christianity. So a couple weeks ago when I spoke, I talked a little bit about the two characteristics of hope and faith. And we talked about how we are in this path to Pentecost, that we have this faith that we've been given and it fuels our hope and we define hope as a confident expectation in what God has promised, including Jesus' return, our resurrection someday, eventually, eternal life in God's kingdom. That is our hope. We have a hope, a future expectation that's rooted in God's faithfulness. And in that, as we talked about, you know, Jesus comes to them and he, he challenges them and it, it, it exhorts them to wait for the promise of the Father there in Jerusalem and that eventually they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we see as the book of Acts unfolds, that day of Pentecost does come and all of a sudden you see this transformation among God's, or excuse me, Jesus' disciples, now turned apostles, who were in the Gospels, these scared men, right, that said, no, we'll never leave you or forsake you, Jesus. We'll follow you wherever you go. And then, of course, he's arrested and he's tried and all of them flee. We see those men, those same individuals that were scared to flee, that were scared at the prospects of what would happen to them, we see them in the face of those same individuals, those same Jewish leaders that put Jesus to death and arrested him boldly in the temple, proclaim the gospel, and defend the faith of Christianity. So the question I have for us today, are we ready to give a reason for our hope when people ask? And to do this today, I'd like for us to go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to read some passages, and I'm going to go a little slower because Brian's not here today. I wasn't able to get to my scriptures to him in time for them to be put on the screen. So, 1 Peter, the third chapter, verse 13 through 16. I'm just going to read it. Then I'm going to talk, some, talk about a, a little bit of the background of, of Peter's uh, epistle here. He says in verse 13, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, as we heard. With meekness and fear, verse 16, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And so just to go through a little bit of the background of this letter, this letter is traditionally ascribed to what we call it, to the Apostle Peter, around the year 62 to 64 A.D. And why this is kind of an important date is because around this time in Rome, uh, there was something called the Great Fire of Rome that Emperor 
Nero at the time blamed on the Christians, and thus it sparked this persecution among Christians, and they were dispersing from Rome. Now, later on at the very last part of the letter in chapter 5, verse 13, there's a reference to the place of which this writing was being written was Babylon, which is probably a coded allusion, according to many scholars, to Rome. So in this letter, Peter's writing in this place that's facing horrible persecution, an emperor of the world-leading empire of the world is blaming the Christians, and they're being basically persecuted. And so his theme in this letter is holy living in the midst of persecution and turning away from evil. And Peter is, of course, continuing this theme that we see throughout other letters. Paul writes about the same theme, about suffering and persecution, and in the midst of it, living out that holy life, as well as James and others. Because in this time, living this Christian faith brought you trouble. Not just from the Gentiles and the Romans and the Greeks, but also from even their own countrymen, the Jews. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, the second verse that we read, it says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But we know that this is an allusion to Jesus' beatitude, the eighth beatitude that we see in Matthew, the fifth chapter, and verse 10, where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then a little bit later, he says, a part of being able to endure this, there's a key, and that is, in verse 15, to sanctify Christ in your heart. So we're going to go through those, but I want to first talk about that first passage that we just read there in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. And I'm going to go ahead and turn there, because uh, I didn't write it out there. So Peter writes the simple question, right? He says, who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And the Greek word, you know, when we read in the English, followers of what is good, that's such a general statement. But the Greek word is something that describes anything that's profitable, generous, upright, and virtuous. So if we were to ask the question, what does Peter mean by being followers of what is good? We could just go down to a couple verses before in verses 8 through 12, where he pretty much defines those characteristics of what he means by the good. Seeking after what's goodness. Let's read it in verse 8. He says, finally, this is before he says, if you are, you know, persons who's following after what's good. Finally, in verse 8, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted." Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And so as he's describing people who are followers of something good, he's talking about people who are reluctant to harm, those who have a benevolent attitude towards other people, who seek the good of others, those who seek peace and run from evil and are courteous. And an interesting note is, is that in the New American Standard Bible, this actual word is translated as phrase, if you prove zealous for what is good. 
And we know what zealous means. I mean, we use that in our own context in the English language. But this is actually the word, the Greek word, zelotis. And the idea here is actually someone who has an enthusiastic passion for goodness. You know, during this time, and we've heard one of the Jewish sects during this time was a group known as the Zealots. And the reason they got their name was because they were fanatics. They were fanatical. William Barclay, he wrote a commentary on First Peter, and he actually talks a little bit about these individuals as fanatical patriots that pledged to liberate their native land with every means necessary, even if it meant sacrificing their own life. And so I like what Barclay says here in this quote. He says, what Peter is saying, love goodness with that passionate intensity with which the most fanatical patriots love their country. I like that quote. Do we love goodness? Do we seek goodness? Do we seek those virtues that Peter lays out, that Jesus Christ demonstrated with a zealous, passionate zeal? There is a real impact that we can have on this world, on the society that we live in. And we live in this world, we know what human nature is like, right? We talked about it leading up to Passover. We talk about it all the time. The scriptures tell us about it. We learn it from just living in this world, the normal chain of reaction in life when someone does something evil to us. To take vengeance into our own hands. Somebody wrongs us, our nature, our human nature, is to attempt to correct it ourselves, to seek justice. Even in something as small as someone cutting us off on the highway. Anybody ever been there before? You're on the highway, you're driving, maybe it happened on your way to church today. Someone cuts you off, your immediate reaction is somehow, maybe not, if you're like me, it still has a weakness, lay on the horn, whip around, try to get them back. I'm going to whip around and cut them off now even on things, something as small as that. But what Peter is saying is connected to what Jesus told us on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the fifth chapter. Let's go there real quick. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew, the fifth chapter. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying things that is a little bit different than what they're used to hearing. He says in verse 44, I'm breaking in the context. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. There's no doubt about it that we have a God that's a God of justice. Justice is important. Speaking out for what's right is important. We see that in the scriptures. But it's not ours to get. Vengeance is not for us to obtain. It belongs to God as the scripture says. At the heart of Christianity is reconciliation. That is bringing back what has been broken into a right standing. And Jesus through his life he did not challenge us to go out and to seek justice in terms of making right what was wrong. He did that himself, and through that, he brought about reconciliation. He challenges us to live a life that's bent on reconciliation because that is exactly what he has done for us. He's reconciled the world to the Father. Those of us 
who have quote, chosen to accept his sacrifice. And we have an opportunity. If we want to be lovers of good, if we want to be those who are you know, proved to be zealous for that which is good, we have to take the opportunity that we've been given to do what Christ says that we have an opportunity to be, and that is the salt of the earth, to be peacemakers, to be the light of the world. By asking this question, there's some practical applications to this. Peter asked this question in a practical, logical sequence. He says, who is going to hurt you if you're lovers of good? Because although this isn't perfect, and Peter goes on to talk about this, if we live the Christian principles, if we're seeking goodness, we're seeking the good of others, we're going to have a lot less problems in our lives. We really are. When we're seeking vengeance, when we're seeking to repay evil for evil, practically the consequences is going to be is that we're going to have a lot more issues in our life. And see, it doesn't have to just be people outside of the faith. It can be even among each other. Even as small as the dynamics between a husband and wife or a child and a son or a child and a, and a daughter or, or, you know, uh, or excuse me, a, a mother and a, and, and a child. Even in those situations, when we seek evil for evil, and I'm not saying that we're seeking to be evil towards you know, our friends or brethren, but we're seeking to maybe get them back for something that they might have done to us. They, we feel wrong. Instead of seeking to be a peacemaker, seeking goodness, seeking and choosing to be forgiving, and letting God be the one who sets things right. But despite this, not perfect it's practically yes we are going to have less problems in life if we're following after the christian way in terms of the the normal ethical things and the way that we treat each other in the world but it's not perfect because peter says in verse 14 that it's still possible that doers of good of course as we know receive persecution receive evil and suffering we know this both from experience all of us here have different experiences that we went through and the scriptures tell us this. There's people, and we, this has been mentioned, I think Jeff Henderson came just a month or so ago, and he talked about how it's easy living in America, right? Getting wrapped up and forgetting about other people living in parts of the world where their faith brings not just persecution, but the threat of death because of what they believe. We need to note that the suffering, though, that Peter is talking about He's connecting it as a direct result, this persecution of our faith. And Mark kind of talked a little bit about it earlier. Although we don't live in the world where you know, Christianity is illegal, we do live in a social context where it's becoming more difficult to be a Christian in terms of the ridicule that's brought about, the political social dynamics that we're living in the different ideas that are being infiltrated into our society in general that are contrary to this word of God. And we're looked at sometimes when we stand on these precepts as being bigots, as being intolerant. And we all understand that that's the world that we're living in. William Barclay, that commentator that I keep mentioning, he says there's two kinds of suffering that a Christian may face. Basic human suffering. We've all experienced this. Physical suffering, we're mortal, we have aches and pains, 
We have feelings of sadness sometimes, weariness, mental distress, physical and emotional pain. But there is also suffering as a direct result of our faith. And I think that's what Peter is getting at here. Unpopularity, ridicule, verbal and physical threats. And again, many of us might not have experienced those, but they are things that other Christians in different parts of the world, because we in this faith, and as time goes on, it's more and more obvious that this faith is out of step with the normal standards in the society in which we live in. And as time goes on, and there's different eras in history where this was more true than other, other areas, other places in the world, we know that as time goes on, this just gets worse and worse and worse. And it will. And the scriptures tell us that. The scriptures tell us that. But he says something that, again, we've seen other places. Paul say it. We've seen James say it. He says, count yourself blessed, essentially. You're blessed for being persecuted for your faith. And there are several reasons for this. Sorry, my notes just went off here. Give me a minute. Okay, I apologize, this is unorthodox, but I'll be right back. I'm going to grab my backup that I should have brought. One minute. My apologies. This is uh, something I've actually thought about a few times, and it actually happened today. So, my apologies. The iPad that I use, and I don't want to cover this microphone because I know that it's. Is this microphone, is it straight from here for both the audio? Okay. So, it doesn't matter if it's covered. Okay. All right. I think I'm in the right spot. Again, I apologize. So what I was talking about was the ideas or the reasons that we're blessed that we're blessed when we receive persecution. And we see this in different places of the scriptures. And sometimes it's kind of strange to, to hear someone tell you that you're blessed when you're persecuted for your faith. One of the reasons that I think that Peter is getting at is because what's most important to us, we're talking about our hope, what we believe in, those things that we're longing for, Christ's return, our eternal life, our part in this kingdom that's going to come, that's of course, rooted in the relationship that we have in God because our heart's completely set and focused on Him, it's completely secure. Now, what I mean by that is, is simply, no one can take it away. No matter what things people bring to us, no matter what 
persecution they bring, no one can take away the things that await us in God's kingdom. Now, this isn't the once saved, always saved. This isn't once you are converted, you no longer you know, have to worry about losing your salvation. What this does mean, though, is, is that when our values, when our focus is focused solely on God, when the most important thing in our life, the centerpiece of our existence, become focused on the hope that's in us, the most important thing is airtight. It's secure. On the other hand, the reason that he's saying that you're blessed is because the person who's persecuting you, these Gentiles or even these Jews, their focus is on probably, most likely, especially if you're talking about Gentiles, temporary things, material things, things that are temporary, all things that can be taken away at any moment. And we are also blessed, another reason, because we are following in the footsteps of Jesus himself, who was the great example of the one who suffered for righteousness. Let's just think about Jesus' example. When he's talking to Pilate, the very end of his physical life, he's there talking to this man who was the governor of all or most of the region of Palestine, who had the authority to release him. He could have said some things, and, and Pilate probably could have just been persuaded to release him. And of course, we know that Pilate was worried about the outrage of the Jews at the time. But Jesus said in John 19, verse 10, he says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. That's powerful. That's powerful. And although that Jesus had to endure all of the emotional things that humankind and physical suffering that human, being a you know, human brings, Jesus, Jesus demonstrated that teaching that he taught back in Matthew, the 10th chapter, verse 28. And I know I'm going through these passages kind of quick, but it's actually verse 27. Matthew 10, verse 27, he says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but not, cannot kill the soul, but rather... Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus, when he said that to Pilate, demonstrated that it wasn't just a teaching that he taught his disciples and his followers back months ago or a year ago, but it was something he truly and authentically believed. And it was demonstrated as he was talking to one of the most powerful men in the entire region who had his life in his hands, so to speak, physically, that is. And he said those words to him. He feared God over man. And James, the first chapter, verse 2, another passage that tells us that we are blessed when we fall into various trials because the testing produces patience. And trials can be, of course, persecution. They can also be other things as well, uh, including sicknesses and other things that may befall us. And I would say that there is something to be said about trials, persecutions, things that make us uncomfortable, I think if we have the right attitude, it can force us to more rely on God. And so there is a blessing that can come from these trials, persecutions, things that we deal with in this life. In the last part of verse 14, Peter tells them if persecution does come, to not fear it. 
To understand this passage, we have to know that he's actually alluding to Isaiah, the 8th chapter, verse 12 and 13. Let's go there real quick. The context of Isaiah, and where the reason he's pulling from this passage in the Old Testament, is that in Isaiah, we know that the context is that King Ahaz of Judah was asked by the kings of Israel and Syria to join them in an alliance because of the ensuing threat of invasion by the Assyrians into the northern kingdom of Israel. Because Ahaz, king of Judah at the time, he refused their offer to join them. He refused that. Uh, the king of Syria and the king of Israel threatened to invade Judah. So they basically said, you're not going to join with us, we're going to invade you. And so Ahaz, fearing both maybe getting invaded by Syria as well as uh, Israel, but also fearing if maybe Assyria comes in and takes over uh, Israel, he decides that he's going to go and make a secret alliance with Assyria. So he's trying to posture himself. He's thinking to himself, well, you know what? I could form myself and align myself with Judah and Syria, or Judah and Syria, S-Y-R-I-A, or I can maybe team up with the ones who are probably going to win, the Assyrians. And so he decides to team up with the Assyrians. And Isaiah warns Ahaz of ungodly alliances and urges him to rely on God and let him, let God himself be his fear instead of ungodly and temporal empires. And verse 12 of Isaiah, the 12th chapter, reads like this. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, because Ahaz was. He had a moment where he fell into that fear of man, where he feared God more than he feared, or he feared man more than he feared God. He didn't believe that, you know what, I'm in this pickle, I'm in this tough situation, and so I'm going to go ahead and get myself out of it. I'm going to do what so often we try to do as humans, right? I'm going to figure it out myself. Okay, well, what I could do is I could team up with this powerful empire and maybe if I team up, I'll be in their good graces and they'll leave me alone later when they win. And of course, the Assyrians was not something that would be befitting of the kingdom of Judah to be teaming up with. One of the most, you know, talk about justice, one of the most, uh, you know, unjust, unrighteous empires of the time. You know, to the natural person, we all agree that fear is a normal response when persecution and threats come. And even as Christians, we're not immune to this at all. We know that it's a struggle not to cave to this normal human emotion in times of trouble. But we can ask the question, what do people get afraid of or fear? In a lot of ways, I think it goes back to where we put our values we don't get scared of things. We get scared of, of possibly losing out on the things that are really important to us. We get scared of losing our possessions. We get scared of maybe losing our jobs. We get scared of, you know, fearful of, uh, of, of being you know, hurt in some manner. You know, physically, our lives, we know that we're finite and all of these things. We're scared for our family. These are natural fears that we have. But when we trust in God, we know that these things are finite. And there's, you know, loving our family and, and wanting to live, those aren't contrary to God. 
But when we're so fearful that we decide to take things in our own hands and we forget that no matter what happens, we're finite anyways, we're all going to die someday, we're all going to go to the grave unless Christ returns, all of those things that are not Christ the Son and God the Father and the things that they provide and promise, everything else is temporal. We're going to lose all of it. We're not taking any of it with us. It's all going to go with us when we die. And when we come to that conclusion, we realize the finite nature that we have. And we realize that everything that man can bring us is already going to befall us anyways. So choose to fear God. And when you do that, your fear of man and temporal things will greatly diminish. And this brings us to the core of what this message is about. And that is the last thing that Peter says in the last couple things. He says the key to doing this is to sanctify Christ in our hearts. Sanctify Christ in our hearts. In chapter 13 of Peter, 1 Peter 3. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I asked that question at the very beginning. The first part of this verse is what Peter just mentioned. Setting Christ apart. That's what sanctify means in our hearts. He's not there in one part of our hearts where all of our other interest is in the other parts. You know, Christ isn't sharing a space, a living space, or he's not supposed to be sharing a living space in our heart, like roommates with our other hobbies, our other interests, our other values. He's supposed to be the one that is set apart alone in our hearts. And through that, of course, the other things in life are going to be there. The proper love for our family, the proper love for our children, the proper interactions with each other. Sanctify, set apart Christ in your lives as someone who is the only tenant, not sharing a space, a living space with anything else. I like that Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 21. We've read this before, still going back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. But in doing this and saying, sanctify Christ or God the, God, the Lord God in your heart, excuse me, sanctifying Him in your heart, He tells us to do two things. And this is the crux of the message as far as that question I asked just a little while ago. Are you ready to give an answer for the hope that you have? We talked last message that I spoke about faith and hope and about that future confident expectation. But what happens when people ask you? And Mark asked you the same thing a little while ago. A little bit differently, but essentially it's the same question. I have two things, and it's basically all based on what Peter tells us. He says the first thing, be ready to give a defense for the faith, for the hope that you hold. For the hope that you hold. The word here for defense is the Greek word apologia. Everyone ever heard of that word? It's connected you know, to another word that I'm going to talk about in a minute. But apologia in Greek means an answer a formal justification and offense. And this is where we get the word apologetics from. Anyone ever heard of the word apologetics? It's essentially the theological branch 
that is devoted to defending the Christian worldview. And as Christianity was a new movement in the first century, the early Christians, they had to defend their faith often. As I mentioned at the very beginning, not just by random people, but by pretty much everyone they came into contact with. Because in that day and age, Christianity wasn't something that everyone just knew about. And in fact, it was the exact opposite. The idea of a savior. I mean, both Jews and Gentiles thought it was crazy that a man would come and be the Messiah, but yet he died. To the Jews, that was the exact opposite of what they believed in. The Jews thought that, no, the Messiah is supposed to be this military king to come in, put away the Roman rule. That's not what the scriptures say, according to the Jews. That's not that what we've always believed. That's not what we've always expected. And, of course, to the Greeks, who believe in, you know, the idea of the recycling of the soul, they thought the idea of a savior who's divine dying and then being resurrected in this mortal body again, they thought that, you know, the physical flesh was like the jail to the soul. And it was all about, you know, being recycled up into, you know, their pagan myths and stuff like that, into the heavens, into the afterlife and things like that. And so both Jews and Gentiles, we see it all through the scriptures. We see, of course, the Sanhedrin. We've already talked about this. Even the Apostle Paul was something, an individual that they had to defend the faith to before he was converted. We see Mars Hill. You guys all know that in Acts, uh, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. The pagan Greeks and philosophers, they had to contend with them. Government officials, and not only that, not just Jews, not just Greeks, not just government officials, but even they had to defend the faith among heretics in the church. People that were bringing other gospels in. And so, as we give this hope, or this reason, this justification, this apologia for the faith that we hold, our answer should be reasonable. You see, there's this misnomer that Christianity is just this blind faith, that you just believe that Jesus died for your sins, and then it's just all faith. And that there's nothing that really backs it up other than just stories. That's a misnomer. The word reason in the Greek is the word logos. And William Barclay defines this word as a reasonable and intelligent statement of someone's position. So if we were to go back to Genesis, the first chapter, and we were to start reading the creation story of all that there is, including mankind, we would see God create living things, plants, and then animals, and then we would see humans being created, and there was something very specific that humans had and that they were given, and that is reason. It's a gift of God. It's one of the things, of course, we're made after the image and likeness of God. We've been given the ability to reason. And God expects us to use that gift. He's endowed us with that gift, and he expects us to use that gift. And that gift has resulted in mankind doing things that's pretty impressive. But it goes back not because man's great, but it's simply a manifestation of God's glory. He created man. He gave us his ability to reason. Now, we don't have God's ability, of course, but he's given us that ability to be thinkers, to be problem solvers, to figure things out. And so when we see these magnificent things that man does, and we know that there's the other side as well, there's horrific things that man does, 
But we see the glory of God, even in the midst of that fallen nature that we all have, we see the glory of God being demonstrated simply because we've been given that component of reason. And all through the scriptures, we don't see the apostles just going and just, you know, well, Jesus died for your sins, and, you know, this is the reason why you should follow him. But they contended, they reasoned with them. And we see three things that they appeal to in their defense. Number one, the Old Testament. The apostles appealed to the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the only Bible that they had during the times of the New Testament for the justification for their hope. And we see Jesus himself, he does this as well. He doesn't just come, he does come on his own authority, but he also points back to the scriptures, to the scriptures, to the writings, the Torah, to the prophets. And he spoke of things that were completely in line of what the, the prophet spoke of. The second thing, the most important thing, and I really encourage you to uh, learn about the different dynamics of the resurrection uh, because that's one of the most important things that you can learn about. And not just that, yes, the Bible says that Jesus rose from, rose from the dead, but understand the implausibility, literally, of it not being something that happened. The historical side of the resurrection. And I know that scholars and historians and some of them will scoff at that. But there is an extremely compelling case to be made that this really did happen. When they apply modern historical methods, it's a very plausible thing. It's not just something we just take it on faith. It's something that is serious. It was a, the resurrection of Christ that was at the core of, of the apostles' defense. And it's interesting that that's the core of Christianity. Jesus rising from the dead was the seal that he was the promised Messiah. Simply put, no matter what you thought about the way the Messiah was supposed to be, no matter what you thought the Messiah was supposed to act, the fact that this man died, rose again, and ascended to heaven means that maybe you have to reevaluate your interpretation of what you thought the scripture said. And so when we see the apostles, when we see these early individuals, Jesus comes and talks to them in Acts, the first chapter. And a little bit later, right before Pentecost, Peter stands up and says, you know that Judas guy, our 12th apostle or disciple? And obviously he's you know, the one that's dead now. He uh, betrayed Jesus. We need to make sure that we replace him. And so they, they pick two men, Joseph and Matthias, both of which had been with Jesus from the time of John the Baptist and witnessed the resurrection and witnessed the ascension. It was important for them to have someone to replace Judas that had witnessed all of those things. And so they picked Matthias to complete the number 12 for, their, uh, for, for the disciples, now turned apostles, of course. We also see them, and this is, go ahead and go to Acts, the 17th chapter. We also see that they use cultural distinctives cultural distinctives, and I'm going to explain this in just a minute. This doesn't mean that you, 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 you basically uh, you know, bend Christianity or a viewpoint to fit the culture of the day, but we see that biblical authors use things in other cultures to bridge common ground. Now, this is the book of Acts in seven, chapter 17, where Paul is, of course, on Mars Hill, what's known as Mars Hill there in in Athens. He says in verse 22 of Acts the 17th chapter, he says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Aragopagus, or 
Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. This is a fascinating story in the book of Acts that we could study for a long time, and it has a lot of historical implications. It's interesting that here in Athens they have this random inscription because you've got to remember they didn't have you know, the same characteristics you know, for, for the God of the, the Jews as they had for Zeus. They had all these legends behind them, right? Zeus and Apollos and, and, and Poseidon. All of them were attached to some different part of nature. They didn't have that with God. They didn't really understand the Jewish God because the Jewish faith was so different. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation to men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of you or each one of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this all by raising him from the dead. So the crux of this was him being raised from the dead. And here we see that Paul, he appeals to these individuals in Athens by appealing to the inscription that was already there, the unknown God. So he's using this as a bridge to them, but he also quotes one of their own poets. Now in this, there's nothing that he does to twist the gospel, the true message of, of Christianity. But he uses those things to try to reason with them, to try to build a bridge with them. In order to be able to reason, though, for the hope that lies within us, we have to know what that hope is. We have to know what our Bible says. You know, for many years, you know, when I was coming as a kid to the church, I talked about my conversion for and the different dynamics, and I grew up in this church, and I knew a little bit about our, our doctrines and our teachings and things like that, but I couldn't answer questions that friends, you know, posed to me. I couldn't do it. Uh, I hadn't really studied the Bible. I hadn't studied the theology, and I'm not saying that we have to be theologians, but we should know what we believe and why we believe it, and we should be checking the scriptures all the time. To ensure that whatever our belief is, of course, is in line with what the scriptures say. We have to know what are the promises that God has given us. We have to be able to tell people about the transformation that's taken place in us. 
and the things that await us and the plan that awaits us and how that's going to work. Now, we don't know all the dynamics and the different steps, but we know that the scriptures are plain about the basics of the gospel. That the reason you follow this man, Jesus, as was alluded to by Mark, is because we're fallen creatures. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we're deserving of death. And the whole point of Christ is to remove that death penalty from us to make it possible for reconciliation to take place between us and God that was lost long ago when sin entered this domain of mankind and that's the crux of 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 the the biblical message all the way through Genesis to the book of Revelation that there's been this plan in place to reconcile man back to God to provide a way for man to be reconciled back to God. The second thing that we learn about, uh, or that you know, we're told by Peter, is that not only do we have to give an answer, a reason, and it needs to be reasonable, and we need to know what it is, but when we do so, and I think this is almost as important as knowing what we believe and giving an answer, is the manner in which we give it. We must give our answer in meekness and fear. Our answer must be Christ-like. Now, whenever I was, again, I'm, I, I, I don't want to talk about myself, but I just can, I'm trying to pull from my own experience for, in hopes that maybe you will relate to what I'm saying in your own experience. But I remember when I was first baptized, um, you know, and of course I grew up in this faith, as I just mentioned. It's real easy to be so zealous that you're wanting to go tell everybody about how wrong they are about things, right? Okay, you're on fire. And it's real easy to, to, you know, you know, I would, I would try to start Bible conversations constantly. I mean, it's just coming out of me. Uh, and sometimes those conversations, and this is just babes in Christ is all I'm going to say, okay? Uh, those conversations weren't always very productive because of the way I approached it. I mean, it literally was like an urgency. I got to tell, I tell you what, this is so obvious right here. The Sabbath right here is, is the seventh day of the week. Everybody goes to church on Sunday. Um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to set them straight. Let's read, let's, let's open up Genesis here. Let's go to Hebrews 4. All these different things that I would do to try to get into discussions, to try to, I, let's just, I'm just going to be honest with you. Looking back on it, I think it was, it was a pride thing. There was not a lot of humility all the time. And it was wrong. And it wasn't productive. We cannot bully somebody into accepting what we believe. Of course, in this context, we're talking about giving an answer. And so our response needs to be Christ-like. It can't be with an arrogant or belittling spirit. It can't be with a brash tongue. It can't be with a self-righteous attitude. Well, of course, yeah, what do you believe in? It cannot be like that. It's not demonstrating the righteous, God-fearing, and loving attitude that we're supposed to be representing, that's supposed to be in us. It's not showing us to truly have God, the Lord God, sanctified in our hearts. We have to remember, we're not the converter. It's not up to us to convert anyone. It's up to us, through God's Spirit, if He so chooses to do so, to through us possibly plant seeds that God in His own time as the ultimate converter may harvest. We're not the ones convert people. But with that, 
There's the other end of the spectrum, right? There's the overzealous, I'm going to just set everyone straight and make sure every time there's a conversation it's going to go on a Bible topic and I know this person doesn't believe the way I do and so I'm going to steer it towards a conversation that we can kind of have a little debate. It can be like that, but the other end of the spectrum is that I'm going to be as passive as I can get. I'm going to make sure that this uncomfortable conversation, because I know that they don't believe what I believe and, 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 and I like this person, and I'm going to make sure that if any time that the topic kind of, you know, somehow goes to religion or what I believe, I'm going to try to avoid it. I'm going to try to make it really short. Anybody ever been there before? Where you're just trying to avoid the situation. It's uncomfortable. Okay? You're scared that they're not going to understand. They might just walk away like you're weird. Because we do things that are sometimes and considered to a lot of people unorthodox. A few years ago, I was at a restaurant eating. It was a barbecue restaurant. I remember this. I think I've even told this story before. It's a missed opportunity. You know, as much as I was zealous back then, sometimes I feel like I can be not zealous enough to talk and to, to, to take the opportunity to talk about my faith. And of course, I wasn't talking to people who were unbelievers in this situation, but I was at a restaurant with some other people, some friends. And there's a barbecue restaurant, as you all know. Barbecue restaurants is a variety of meats, many of which are not clean. And so I think I ordered a brisket sandwich, and the waitress brought out our food, and they gave me a pulled pork sandwich and another person my brisket sandwich. No one had taken any bites. It was a simple mistake. We figured it out really quickly, and we switched it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is because at, after a little while goes by, one of the individuals there, just in a genuine question, said, hey, what would have happened if you uh, would have taken a bite of that sandwich? Because they knew I didn't eat pork. Now, I don't know what they thought. They, I think it was genuine. It was just a genuine curiosity. I know you don't eat pork. I'm just curious what would happen if you did end up taking a bite of that unknowingly. I don't know if they thought that I needed to go home and rip my clothes and, you know, <laughs> do a ritual or things like that. But I do remember laughing it off and kind of avoiding the conversation instead of maybe taking the opportunity to talk about why, you know, exactly why I don't eat, you know, clean and unclean meats, which really is the greater reason, which it really points to, is the holiness of God. The holiness of God that you're following after. It's a physical manifestation of being holy as God is holy. And of course, as God's the creator, that he's designed us, he's designed our body, and what we should put in it, what's nutrient, uh, what's, you know, the way that our body works and the types of animals that he's created and what's compatible and what's not. I didn't take the opportunity to possibly have and engage in that conversation which could have planted a possible seed for who knows. A year down the line, two years down the line, three years down the line, ten years down the line where they ask more questions, maybe not even to me, but maybe to someone else. Or maybe it prompted them to open up their Bible and look into it. It was a missed opportunity and looking back on that, and looking at this message that I've given today, I think that it's important for us not to be the zealous, arrogant, you know, setting everybody straight attitude, but also don't be so passive where you're not you know, taking advantage of opportunities where there can be Christ-like demonstration of God the Father and Christ sanctified in your heart, uh, you know, representations of what you believe to try to be that salt of the earth, that light of the world to somebody. So we are to answer, you know, of course, uh, with humility. We're also to answer with respect. We all know that, you know, uh, attitude's everything. And I've already kind of touched upon that. If we don't, 
We're not doing it in love. We're not seeking, like what Peter says, you know, lovers of good, being striving or being zealous for what is good, loving other people, wanting what's best for them. And this can be difficult. Everybody's heard of the conversation before. Two things you don't talk about, right? Religion and politics. And it's kind of, it's kind of like proving the test of time. You know, I heard that when I was really, really young, and I don't think it, I think it's essentially the same as it's always probably worse. It's probably like a topic you really, you can't even get away from it, number one. It's everywhere. You know, politics is interdomains that it, you know, once never was. You know, just, you know, basic TV, a television show. Uh, but religion's the same way. And we know that the reason people say this is because how absolutely negative they can turn out. That they can be all-out wars, verbal wars. Religious discussions can turn into some of the most intense, angering, and unrighteous form of, of conversation. It really is the truth. Charles Stanley, maybe you've heard of him before, you know, a long-time preacher. He said one time in a sermon that the most bitter arguments he had ever had was over the Word of God. Because he's arguing theology, and he's arguing, well, I believe this, and this is what it says, and you get into the point where you're trying to win and you're, you're arguing with somebody and you're losing the point of what the scriptures are. You're arguing over something in a manner that is against what the scriptures are supposed to do for you. And that is make you more Christ-like. And the defense must be a witness of true Christ-like conduct. Let's just read that one more time. Verse 15 and verse 16 of First, Thess- uh, First Peter excuse me, chapter 3. He says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And there's no doubt that walking the walk of the Christian life is the best defense against those who object to Christianity. And we've all seen the examples or, or examples of people who simply don't want to have anything to do with Christianity, anything to do with this Bible, anything to do with this Jesus thing, simply because there's maybe leaders of notoriety that claim to be, you know, preachers of Christ or Christians that have done nothing but to bring dishonor on the name of Christ. As Christians, we represent Christ here on this earth, and we must remember that. Ambassadors, we're ambassadors, as the scriptures tell us, ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is someone who's from one country or land to another land, and they are a representation. We're a representation for Christ, the Son, and God the Father. We're here representing the kingdom of God that hasn't came yet, that's coming to this earth at some point. That is what we talk about week in, week out, holy day to holy day. The kingdom of God is preached. The kingdom of God the news of the future kingdom of God coming to this earth, we've talked about year in, year out, day in, day in, week in, week out. We're ambassadors for that. We have to be true ambassadors that really represent we truly are from that kingdom of God. So in closing, I'd like to just kind of bring out five things, five little applications, conclusions. If we follow these things, if number one, if we seek goodness, we may alleviate any unnecessary persecution or criticisms or shames on the name of Christ. Secondly, if we are to hold God as above all things, 
by sanctifying Him in our hearts, showing Him as our true treasure. If we do this, we will be equipped and ready to give an answer to those who ask a reason for our hope. Number three, also by, or number, yeah, number four, excuse me, by also by doing this, we will know what we believe and we'll be in a position for God working through the Spirit to help us with the appropriate answer. We're not always going to know every answer. No matter how much we study, there's going to be more for us to learn. And it's not just about head knowledge. It's about heart appropriation. It's about learning it through our heart and applying it to our life. There's a lot of people that know a lot about the Bible but don't really follow it. Sometimes I feel like I fall in that category. Maybe you've been there yourself. It's not just about head knowledge, but it's about being able to live it, be able to verbally explain it and, and, and defend it. But also, your defense is useless if you're not demonstrating yourself to follow it. And lastly, by doing this, we will be living a life that is a living witness to the power of the truth of Christ. Living witness. When I think of a living witness, I think of Christ, obviously, ultimately. But then I think of those apostles that we kind of started this message out of. Those apostles, right, that preached and defended the gospel, but demonstrated it also with their lives. And so as we close this 35th day on our count to Pentecost, let us think about the faith that we have, the hope that we have, but also strive to be able to give an answer for that hope that lies within us. Possibly by doing so, we can maybe be a vessel for God and planting a seed that might grow into something that he later harvests.